Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change. We do not care whether the cat is black or white, as long as it can catch mice. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. Individual commitment to a group effort. That is what makes a team work, a company work, a society work, a civilization work, is a quote from Vince Lombardi, the Pro Football Hall of Fame head coach who led the Green Bay Packers to five NFL championships including the first two Super Bowls and arguably the greatest American football coach in history. I thought this was an appropriate quote for our discussion today, as our guest, a keen sportsman, is part of a highly accomplished international sporting team who dominated the competition for over a decade. Our guest today is the 2011 Australian of the Year, Simon McKeon, AO. Simon is currently Chancellor of Monash University and non-executive director of National Australia Bank Limited, Rio Tinto Group, and Spotless Group. Simon previously served as Chair of AMP Limited, the CSIRO, Executive Chairman of Macquarie Group's Melbourne office, and was Founding President of the Federal Government's Australian Takeovers Panel. He has had a long and passionate involvement with non-profit organisations, including MS Research Australia, Independent Schools Victoria, InterScience, Business for Development, and the Australian Industry Energy Transitions Initiative. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. I'm your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blenheim Partners, the number one research-led executive search and board advisory firm. Serving as helmsman for Australia's Little America's Cup Syndicate, which held the International Catamaran Challenge Trophy from 1985 to 1996, and a member of the team that attained the sailing speed world record in 1993 and again in 2009, Simon talks to us about executing the one percenters, which can be the difference between failure and glory, and the importance of embracing innovation and technology as we move into the new era, the dawn of which has been accelerated by the pandemic. Lastly, he shares with us his motivation and desire in giving back and shines a light on the champions of the non-profit sector whose astounding passion and selfless devotion in making a positive difference to people's lives make them our unsung heroes. So sit back and enjoy Selfish Happiness. Simon, welcome to the show. Thanks, Greg. We've been blessed in No Limitations with our a, a terrific array of guests, Simon, and today is no exception lawyer, banker, philanthropist, and sportsman. It's been a very busy life, but it all began in Dandenong. What was it like growing up for you? Well, Dandenong, Greg, was the only world I knew. It was, um, you know, an outer industrial 
suburb of, of Melbourne. Yeah. Um, it was a tough place. Uh, it was often the first time drop-off point for many of our immigrants back in those times. I came from the southern Mediterranean rather than everywhere nowadays. Right. And for me, it was just a wonderland. Look, I, I knew at a really young age that life could be tough. You know, I had a, a really good friend who, whose father took his life during oh, right. one of the uh, the building downturns and, you know, I saw a certain amount of street violence and all through the eyes of a six or seven-year-old. And I saw poverty. I saw poverty. But um, on the other hand, I saw this uh, local community, because even though it was a a big bustling industrial town, it kind of felt very separate, you know, way away from Melbourne. And it had a very strong local identity, which my own parents, they were they were both divorcees. They oh, okay. they had me as their one child. They were quite old in a way. Right. But gee, they put themselves into that community, and they had a lot of fun doing it. And so, you know, I've just tried to sum up in a minute or so. But th- those first, um, you know, between the ages of five and ten, five because I could start to understand how at least a community worked, and ten because um, after that we actually moved away from Dandenong. Um, but th- they were incredibly informative powerful years for me you know learned some tough lessons and uh definitely wasn't sheltered from um from some of the tough things in the world so what was the inspiration to commence a career in the in the world of law look i was the classic case you know well considering i spent so much time in my career you know participating in strategy for some of the largest organizations in the land yeah i never had any strategy for me and uh, frankly still don't in many respects (laughs) um for me I actually made a, in, in some sense, a very disappointing decision. I, I sort of made the decision for not very good reason during my teenage years yeah. that a technical career was not for me. I just drew a line through it. I said, look, I think I understand scientific matters and I feel comfortable with maths, but I, I can't even explain it today. I just drew a line through it. And, and by a process of elimination, I ended up approaching uni with, only a couple of options, really. I mean, I wasn't probably going to be an art student, but that left law and commerce. Okay. And, you know, people like you have asked me that question over the years. I've got no good answer, except that, I don't know, perhaps deep down, I didn't back myself to be someone immersed in technology. And uh, all I can say now as an old person is that I actually do regret that. I wish actually that I'd done a, a science law background rather than... Um, Commerce law, uh, but anyway, if, if that's the only thing I've got to regret, it's not much. Well, and where was the lack of confidence from? Do you think was that just the upbringing? Look, I'm I'm actually not sure. I mean, this is the point. I really have spent very little time sitting myself down and saying, Simon, where are you going? You know, what's your plan for life? You know, I'm the classic lucky person who's had no shortage of opportunities. Mm. You know, windows, doors have just opened. And I've honestly just been able to pick and choose. And right back when I was a a, a young kid, you know, those choices weren't there then. Mm-hmm. But again, I say, Greg, I, I just, um, I was concerned perhaps deep down, I've never, you know, been frank with myself, that I just might make a technical error, oh, you know, okay. design a bridge which falls down, <laughs> um, be a heart surgeon and not a very good one or, you know, whatever, whereas i Perhaps deep down, I said to myself, as a commercial person, you can sort of fudge your way through life. I mean, silly thinking, but, you know, we are where we are. Were you a good lawyer? 
Um, well, I only practised law uh, for three or four years, and I was right down the bottom of the pile in a very, very large firm. For me, I just simply regarded it as uh, an extension of my education, actually. In fact, yeah, okay. that was you know, the three or four years where you know, I'd done the, if you like, the academic training through, uh, through a university, and then I did my training as to how the world really works, the world of commerce works. Yep. Was I a good lawyer? <laughs> Average lawyer. But, you know, more importantly, as I said, my eyes were, were just wide open in my early 20s, you know, seeing how particularly, you know, the world of Australian commerce worked. And look, in looking at your career, what you did, it does seem somewhat blessed in what you've said. But, you know, you said you're looking at opportunities, but one has to see them. One has to hear that door knocking. So how did you position yourself as such that you're open to or were you always mindful of putting myself in a position that when it does come up, I'm going to be seriously considered? It honestly didn't really occur to me that way, Greg. All, all I can say is that the the things that seemed to work for me, sure, I've got a, a competitive instinct inside me and like anybody else um, would run hard with it. I know we might get onto sport a bit later on, but you know, I was very fortunate in sport because I had some you know amazing coaching tuition with some of the best sporting psychologists around and in a sense, they brought out that, if you like, ability to succeed. I never got that formally anywhere in business, interestingly. But to, to answer your point, no, I, I would say, you know, if there's a theme to my life, it's just good fortune. It really is. You know, when I think of so many others, starting with my only other sibling, a much older half-sister who had a... Um, uh, you, you know, an issue in her very early childhood, with, which left her with a, a profound intellectual disability. I mean, I just look around and say, honestly, Simon, you know, how lucky can you be? Right country, a brain that works, reasonably healthy. Um, <laughs> you, you, you sort of end up realising that you're in the top 0.001% of 8 billion people. I mean, it's, I don't know, never a day goes by where I don't actually stumble upon that thought. Okay. So you made you made your move into the banking sector, Macquarie. Well, that what was, was all that to, like? that's all to do with my sister, okay. um, who I still see, um, although not right at the moment because we've had it. She's in aged care and had a, a big lockdown here, obviously in Victoria. To keep the story simple, um, I, I was a very small fish in the in the big Sydney corporate legal pond, but I was having a ball. I really did enjoy the work. You know, obviously I had to learn to work hard and. And what have you, but um, it was an extraordinary experience. My family had no previous experience with Sydney. I thought it was an extraordinary place, and I love the fact that even in the middle of winter, you could get outside and feel pretty comfortable, unlike Melbourne sometimes. But one night, my you know aging father rang me up and said, "Look, Simon, is there any way you could come back to Melbourne? Um, you know, your sister." die is is causing us a bit of grief and there was a long complicated story she'd married and it was tough and and there were two little kids and um anyway you know with a deep breath I said yes of course I will come back and and you know felt at the time oh gosh you know aren't I a, well, not a saint but uh you know I'm doing the right thing here and I'm giving up this extraordinary position that I landed in in Sydney blah 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 blah, blah. but then the interesting bit is that three or four of the partners in this big legal firm, when I said to them, look, I'm going to have to leave, they said, look, you might like to spend a year in an, an investment bank or a merchant bank, as it was then called. They had done that. 
themselves. We learned a lot. It was great. Made us better commercial lawyers, et cetera, et cetera. And then we came back and became partners in this firm and off we went. And I said, well, I didn't really have any fixed thoughts or obligations. I said, that's not a bad idea. Organised a few interviews in Melbourne, scored a, a role with this tiny little outfit. It wasn't called Macquarie at the time. It was called Hill Samuel. But what impressed me was the people. I had never, ever seen a group of working people before. in the. I'd seen it in sport. I hadn't seen it actually in the workplace. And they were just a, a breed apart. They were different. And their smallness actually made them good because they were often taking on, you know, the Wall Street um, giants at the time. And they didn't have a, a name that anyone knew particularly well and, and they certainly didn't have size and scale, but they had their brains and their competitive instinct. And all I can say is uh, whilst I went part-time at Macquarie ultimately, you know, gosh, 20 years or so ago, I still have an association with the place. I, I just can't begin to tell you how much it's opened my eyes as to, uh, you know, how to, to really succeed. It's an extraordinary place. So was it very similar to the sporting field then, Simon? Look, I would say it was because okay. um, my theme in sport in a way, at least in, in international sport, is that, you know, the teams I was involved in were never the best funded and they never had the best resources and what have you. But we really dug deep. and. Interestingly, I was in a type of um, or part of sailing that was very, very, very technological. So, you know, there weren't too many restrictions on what we could do. And and, and the, the best thing, of course, that we had this extraordinary, you know, technology giant. Uh, he was actually a, a manager in Telstra. He, he was actually responsible for some of the very clever things that Telstra did or Telecom 30, 40 years ago. Yeah. But his hobby was aerodynamics and hydrodynamics. And working closely with him, I could see, you know, how the world of technology could just change things so radically. He, he was absolutely the reason that we had so much success in our world sailing speed record and one or yeah. two other things as well. And this is in catamarans? Uh, is this a catamaran yeah, you're talking about? That, that's right. And we yeah. ultimately built a different boat that won the uh, world sailing speed record. But bringing it back to business and tying it back to Macquarie, in many respects, you know, you clearly perform best when you know you're up against it. You clearly perform best when you look at the at whatever competition you're up against and you can see immediately that they've got things you have not got. And it just gives you a mindset which is incredibly valuable. I'm not surprised. I mean, I'm an AFL person living in Melbourne. And no coach of any team, even when they're right up the top of the ladder undefeated and they're playing the bottom team, no one ever comes to another weekend of footy complacent. They say, this is the one we're worried about. And if that's a lesson or a theme for me that goes right back to my early 20s when I saw a, a small emerging investment bank that quietly inside had this innate desire to, to be big and global and relevant. And all I can say is how lucky was I that I stumbled into it because my sister needed me back here in Melbourne. I mean, that's the story. I otherwise would have been a boring lawyer for 40 years. The key takeaways was, as you said, was the people you surrounded yourself with there. But they also must have yep. given you freedom to be yourself. Look, perhaps Macquarie's been a little bit lucky there in the sense that, you know, starting small, you can very loudly define who you are, what you want to be. And yep. three CEOs ago now, Alan Moss, had a uh, he led with a phrase called loose tight 
And my interpretation of that was that, well, let me deal with the tight bit first. Look, we're in the financial sector, services sector. You can't be too cavalier in in your relationships, in in your stewardship of funds, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So there's there's no doubt that that we need to be tight. But I think what he was saying was, let's not be over tight. Let's not suffocate ourselves. Let's not stifle the ability to actually grow and be successful. Let's look really critically at every aspect of our organization, which some might describe as bureaucratic. And that was the loose bit. And when you feel that a window is opening and it's yours just to climb through and and be very successful on the other side, go through it. Don't hesitate. And I have to say that, you know, so many organizations that that might have been much bigger were obviously up against a much more stringent, difficult environment where they were staring at, you know, bureaucracy or system upon system upon system to prevent a failure. And uh, having that, you know, that youthfulness, if I can put it that way, just to take on the world, but pinching yourself every now and then and saying, look, you can stuff up. So there is a role for being tight, but just work out with your you know, work out intelligently. Where do you need to be tight and where don't you? And Simon, you talk about, which we'll touch base in a few minutes about your sporting career, but sporting is all about the edge, isn't it? It's getting the millimetres to be ahead or whatever it is in, yeah. in sailing. And then sometimes, as you say, it's about understanding new technology, breaking that barrier. You've had, yeah. you seem to have a love affair in some regard throughout your career also with technology. Does that stem back from that mentality, I've got to get the edge? Well, funnily enough, it, it probably gets back to what I said right at the beginning that, you know, for no particularly good reason, I said no to science when I was a teenager. And, and, and I kind of knew in my early 20s that I'd made a bad, you know, a wrong, it wasn't going to be a life crippling decision, but it was more a sense of disappointment. But innately, I'm interested in better processes, uh, you know, things that just improve life. Um, it doesn't have to be a click on a keyboard. It can be any aspect of, of improvement. And um, all I can say is there's various windows have opened, you know, during my life. I mean, that, that part of yachting, which we might come to, was what was not about being in one boat the same as a hundred other boats and trying to win a race by two metres after two hours of slogging it out. It was actually, I, I was attracted to the high speed part of yachting. Well, why don't we Never count sailing. to it? Why, why don't we count to it? So right. Let's go to it. Okay. Yeah. Look, uh, it all gets back to when I was a teenager and uh, my father, um, you know, bought me a, a second hand. Well, he asked me, what did I want to get? And I, and I was a member of a local yacht club. And I was just amazed. This is back in the, um, in the early 70s at how fast these these emerging two-hulled catamarans went. They were just like so much faster than the other boats. And, you know, fortunately he bought me an old second-hand uh, boat, which actually did fall apart after, it literally fell apart. But, you know, having that taste of like, where did that speed come from? You know, I, it was just extraordinary. Anyway, to cut a long story short, fortunately that yacht club was the nucleus of of a syndicate, which um, uh, look, I only joined it once it had been in place for some time. But again, referring back to this this guy Lindsay Cunningham, who had been the Telstra, the, the the telecom manager, doing extraordinary things there, and had this passion and indeed brilliance in the area of hydrodynamics and aerodynamics. And I 
I became a junior part of that syndicate. And as time went on and it held all sorts of world records and and held the Little America's Cup for some time, etc. Which is what, Simon? What is the Little America's Cup for those? Little America's Cup is um, not around much nowadays because it actually has been taken over by the America's Cup. But once upon a time, the America's Cup, of course, was sailed in big, slow keelboats, yep. and it was a typically a best-of-seven match race. At the same time, there was this thing called the Little America's Cup, and it was sailed in um, boats you know, less than half the length of the, the big keelboats, but they were very lightweight, quite unrestricted in their design um, catamarans. And the thing that really dominated, there were many, many technological features which were interesting, but the thing that just captured your imagination the moment you came up next to one was the fact that they didn't use sails. They used the wing, just like off the side of a 747. And it, it wasn't one simple aerofoil. It was, a, in our case, a very complex multi-aerofoil arrangement, which was, of course, this is probably getting too too hard for some people, but when you go from one tack to another, we actually had to have a mechanism whereby it set itself up as the perfect aerofoil on the other side, which was quite complicated. Anyway, the, the point was that these boats went three or four times the speed of the wind, and people kind of scratched their heads saying, how does that happen? You know, can you... <laughs> You can't go faster than the wind. But that was the whole point. They were using extreme aerodynamics uh, and a whole bunch of other physics concepts to simply stretch that envelope. And, you know, as a young person, it was incredibly exhilarating, quite aside from the fact that we were continually coming up against the limitations of mankind's understanding of certainly low-speed aerodynamics and uh, and hydrodynamics. And for me, it was just absolutely fascinating. Where was the pinnacle, Simon? I think that there were many, many pinnacles. But for me, um, I mean, what happened was we held this Little America's Cup for quite a few years. And then one of my very best friends, he's a plumber down here on the Mornington Peninsula. I remember it as if it was yesterday, but it's now, gosh, 30 years ago. He said to us as we're having morning tea one day, or you know, to the syndicate, he said, look, we've created this extraordinary boat that goes around a course faster than any boat in the world, upwind, downwind, all this sort of thing. And, and that technological guru I referred to before, Lindsay Cunningham, his nickname was Sport for some reason. And my plumbing friend said to, to Lindsay, Sport, what would it take to just design the fastest boat in the world, just like a sprint. We don't have to tack or jibe or go around here and there. We just go, and there was actually a contest for that. It was the 500-metre sprint. Um, Australia had never never come anywhere near. It was always uh, held by the Brits or the French or the Americans or something. And this was the amazing thing about sport. Uh, and we were, of course, only working on weekends. You know, that was when we campaigned and we went back to our jobs. Next weekend, he came back with his old house plans. What I'm saying is he recycled everything. He turned over this massive, you know, metre-by-metre plan, and he had this intricate drawing of a thing. I call it a thing because none of us even knew which side was up or which way was <laughs> forward. It was radical to, to the extreme. And he said, oh, I think this will work. Long story short, you know, over the next two years, we built that thing. <laughs> And to answer your question, Pinnacle, 
to, oh, it was just a large-scale science project. And we had lots of disappointment along the way, almost killed ourselves, you know, a few times. But finally, when we mastered this beast and got it to literally set a new world record at 46 and a half knots, way over 80 kilometres per hour, doesn't sound much, I guess, but let me tell you when, you know, you're in this contraption that's, that had, you know, had broken apart many, many times and, and hurt us. Um, it was really quite something. And then to actually set that world record was extraordinary. And then over the next 15 years or so, we kept taking it up. And if there was a second pinnacle, it was really being the first humans in the world to get through the 50-knot barrier, which That's again right. doesn't sound much. It's just a number. But for those who understand a bit about physics and hydrodynamics and what have you, it's very hard to get boats to um, to go those last few knots through 50 because a certain problem happens with getting technical now, but the gasification of the water uh, around our rudders up close to 50 knots. And we had to spend years just solving one little problem there. But, um, you know, the sense of exhilaration, just kind of thinking, gosh, I've, you know, there was a crew, very important part of the uh, the project. He did much more than me, actually, in making it happen. But for the two of us to whiz past that finishing line, knowing that we'd sort of been the very first people in the world to to get through a mythical barrier previously thought couldn't get through it was amazing. What year was that, Simon? Uh, 1993 was the the year that we actually set the world record. Yeah. And then it took us a full 16 years to go just four more knots to break the 50-knot barrier, largely because of what I just said. You know, there was a particular logjam, if you like, that, that had to be solved to get through another four knots. Yeah. What's your takeaways from teamwork? Well, my takeaway is that, um, and they're not just words because I've seen it too many times, but, you know, the collection of a bunch of passionate individuals, and I might even add the word passionate, ordinary individuals, when you get that right mix, nothing can get in the way of it. You know, what I'm saying is that we, as a community, we often worship the individual. You know, we put them on a pedestal, the celebrity focus, all that sort of stuff. Incredible. And obviously there are, there are extraordinary people who deserve those sort of accolades. But I guess I'm a more normal, ordinary person who has just seen the power of an incredibly well-functioning team. Let, let me just go briefly back to that world sailing speed record. Our team really need to be about 20, 25 people because there was a lot of things to do behind the scenes. We called ourselves Dad's Army because <laughs> the average age of most of those people were 60 or 70. They were retired. They had time on their hands. Wow. But let me tell you, a harder working, more passionate group I have rarely seen. And of course, one of their advantages is that they all had experience, you know, experience of decades. And when the going got tough, and the tough did get going, you know, yeah. we destroyed the boat several times, ended up in a million pieces, have to start again. Having a 70-year-old, and I felt terrible because sometimes it might have even been crew error that led to it. You know, we're <laughs> right on the edge. Yeah, okay. And, uh, and a 70-year-old would come up and say, that's okay. You've given us something to do now. Um, <laughs> just, their, just their attitude, you know, their positivity. And these are honestly ordinary people, like in many respects me. And the power of, of the team, the, the, the effectiveness of a very good leader and a very clear aim, when you put those three things together, not much that can't happen. 
And have you seen that really come to life? You mentioned Macquarie a minute ago. You've seen it in mm. many other organisations you've had the privilege to engage with or well, work with? Well, of course I have. And in, in some respects, again, if we're talking about organisations, I've probably seen it more in the non-for-profit space than the corporate space. And I just say that because, look, corporates are extraordinary things, but in many respects they have a handicap because they're expected to succeed. They pay their people a lot of money. They've got processes and experience that, and they've got lawyers and all sorts of advisors at hand. And uh, when something doesn't quite go right in a corporate, um, you know, tough questions are asked. In many respects, I've seen bigger, more profound things happen in lesser organisations simply because, you know, we weren't so worried about meeting communities' expectations, you know, and who'd ever heard of us type thing. And particularly in the non-for-profit sector where there's almost an expectation of a destiny to fail because we don't have the resources that the corporate sector often does, if that makes any sense. Yeah. So, you know, look, I'm someone who who would love everything that I happen to be involved in to succeed. That doesn't always happen. But interestingly, I think it's just as hard for the corporate with all its resources to succeed because of that um, almost sense of nervousness, you know, that it's that it's going to fail. Simon, what, what drew you to your focus in philanthropy? Oh, selfishness. You know, it goes right back to those years in Dandenong, and in particular, say, not just my parents, but a group of, of friends that, um, you know, their social group, if I can put it that way. Now, there was never any poverty in our household in Dandenong. My father was a local chemist and, you know, there's always food on our table. But what really impressed me, and of course it was the only existence I had when I was a small boy, but the local professional community in Dandenong, if I can put it that way, doctors, the bank manager, just the people that kind of had it good, they did connect with each other very strongly and went out of their way to make sure that they're involved in good projects. And as a young boy, I mean, I didn't know any other world, so that was the world I saw. But what I, what I remember very clearly is that they had a great time doing it. And I never forgot that. And of course, I went off on my own little tangent, which was in a very different world to the industrial city of Dandenong when I was in the CBD. But I said to myself, I never, ever want to lose that um, that feeling that my parents had all the time of just feeling, um, of getting these great experiences out of helping disaffected communities. And so I, that's why I answered without hesitation, selfishness, because various things I've done in all over the place in, yes, um, in philanthropy have undoubtedly given me so much more than I've ever given it. Where do we stand as a nation in regards to understanding the work done by people like yourself or people like the non-for-profits? And I guess we should yeah. really discuss this, bearing in mind of your experience, what are we going to be facing in this world of COVID? Yeah. Um, well, Greg, we're such a lucky country. And, you know, I've been lucky because particularly with one or two of my philanthropic hats, I have spent a lot of time or some time overseas in, in some of the toughest parts of the world. And you know, these are not just the usual tourism hotspots, but they're just incredibly tough spots where, interestingly, and I just heard this again yesterday for some reason, but there's no issue about happiness. You know, in fact, don't get me going on happiness because <laughs> I think that's something we have to take far more seriously as a science in the future than, than we do today, measuring it. 
But what I'm saying is in terms of just impoverished conditions, you know, I've tried to go out of my way to to see that. So I then contrast that to Australia. And one of our difficulties is that we're an incredibly lucky country. And I say that carefully because not everyone is lucky here. Uh, And even with a sophisticated social security system, there's still a lot of hardship. But overall, and even during this COVID era, many of us are getting by. And all I'm saying or in emphasising that, that does lead to complacency. It just does. When you live in a wonderful place like Australia, let's face it, it is easy just to shut the door and tell yourself there's, there's not too much hurt going on outside. Whereas, of course, there is. And, um, you know, I think the challenge for Australia, uh, I mean, we actually rate very, very well on world philanthropic scales, although we've been a little bit slow for the well-to-do to to open their wallets. That's happening increasingly now. But for many years, uh, if I can call it, you know, the middle of the road Australian has actually on a world scale been very generous, which is, I think, something that is, is fantastic. But, you know, all I would conclude with is there's always more to do. There is always more to do. And the best thing is that each and every one of us, when we find the right place uh, in that world of need, find the right organisation, the right group of people, the right cause, you just get so much more out of it than you ever give. Speaking of causes, I guess one of them came from a personal experience. I read somewhere. Is it true, Simon, you were walking across... A road one day, and yeah, and you and you did go blind. Yeah, and it wasn't that wide a road either. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, look, I I got to the other side and literally had to hug a tree because um, just in that you know twenty seconds or whatever of walking across the road, um, my sight went from twenty twenty to it wasn't actually black, but it was just really full of flashing. You know, it was, uh, and I really couldn't see very well and. Yeah, that was um, my first introduction to uh, to the world of MS. It happened um, gosh, a little more than twenty years ago, and it was followed by you know a handful of other um, episodes. They call them, and they didn't seem to be particularly related. I went, I, I was paralysed from the hip down for for a while, and um, anyway, ultimately my you know neurologist with, with these seemingly unrelated incidents, um, deleted various things off his list and ended up with, you've got multiple sclerosis. Now, that was really scary at the time. I had, you know, four young boys and I wondered, I can remember actually being in a hospital bed one night at 3am, not being able to sleep. And and this was the time when I was paralysed from the hip down. And I didn't actually know whether I'd kicked the last footy with the kids, whether I'd sailed my last yachting race, whether I'd sprinted up my last group of stairs <laughs> between floors at Macquarie, you know, was my world about to change very radically? And, you know, like anyone in that situation, um, I, I feel a bit sorry for myself. But I made a pledge, you know, to some will interpret it as a pledge to a, a God or a pledge to me or a pledge, whatever. But I said, look, if I can ever return to a sense of normality, um, well, a couple of things, actually. Firstly, I will never forget how I feel now, a, a sense of real uncertainty as to, you know, what, and, and I've emphasized before how lucky my life has been. I mean, I was very well aware of 
of this fortunate existence I'd had. And I said, oh, well, perhaps this is now the payback. <laughs> you know, it all suddenly stops. But the second bit was probably more important. And I said to myself, and I was so lucky because, you know, I have been a busy person and the, the years just race by. And, and it's not as if I hadn't had any involvement with, with philanthropy. I actually had, you know. So you already started the, that process? You already started? Oh, very much so. In fact, yep. at that point, I think I'd been on the board of World Vision for seven or eight years. And, um, uh, y- you know, I didn't need any reminding of how important that was. Okay. But it went to a new level. And I just said, look, Simon, if I ever get out of here in one piece and, you know, able to perform without too much of a, of a disability, one, don't forget about it. And two, for goodness sake, just make every day count. I mean, it's pretty basic stuff. And and if I thought that I'd made every day count leading up till then, um, it was just a reawakening of how you could make every day count even more, <laughs> if that made any any sense. And it was no secret then that shortly after that, I I did go part-time at Macquarie and just, you know, created a whole lot more time to uh, to do, you know, other things. And then you've moved now into the next part of your career, or from that point onwards, into the boardroom. Yeah, well, in, in a way, I've been involved in governance, I guess, yeah. if you call it, uh, actually ever since, well, in my young 20s. In fact, I, I joined the board of, a, of an emerging independent school, which had a bit of a problem with civil war at, at board level. I was just asked to join it to, you know, to, to help a little bit. So, you know, the world of the board, indeed, even as a young lawyer or a, or a young investment banker, you, you know, you, you're often immersed in the world of the board. So it's never been, uh, well, not for many, many years has it been novel. You know, it's sort of just part of my life. But but you are right. The amount of time I now spend with a formal governance role is now, you know, reasonably considerable. Uh, and um, yeah, you know, it's it's important that we we get that part of society right as well. Well, what's important to you in the boardroom, Simon? Now, like you said, you've got the experience. Well, it gets back to what we talked about before, Greg. Namely, for me, um, it starts. It doesn't start with skills. Okay. It actually starts with team. It starts with a group of people who can have those candid, honest, tough conversations, find it easy to disagree. In particular, I think it is so important for boards to have the right relationship with management, which is part coaching, part support, of course, and also a big part of challenging, convince us that doesn't make sense type of of discussions. But but I start absolutely at the point of you've got to have the the right people. I'm an enormous supporter of diversity, not to make yourself look good in the annual report or on various... (laughs) corporate scorecards but you know it does get back to particularly the sporting team analogy if we'd had the same type of person in our team yeah right we would have been hopeless you know i mean an afl or a rugby team obviously needs i don't know much about rugby but in afl you need a whole bunch of two meter guys and a whole bunch of 1.7 1.8 meter guys you know some really strong and heavy others nimble and all I'm saying is to, to get that right complement and then the magic is to actually get it to work as a team with all that diversity is the way for success. And it's the same in the boardroom. If we're all the same boring 
60-year-old white Anglo-Saxon males, we're just not going to be competitive. We just miss out on so much of, of what we need to know to be successful. And um, I know that's been a bit confronting for <laughs> a few of us along the way, but it's just basic. And the important thing is to um, to think long and hard about, uh, you know, you can only have a certain number of people in a board, you can't have 100, and just making sure that everyone is actually contributing something that's pretty special, that, you know, without them, you would notice a difference. Simon, you've also got the big responsibility of the hire and the fire of the CEO. As the chair, what do we look for or what do you look for or what's your definition maybe then of a leader? I think to keep it simple, I think the the real qualities or the, the, the requirements from my perspective and, and, in, and in no particular order of importance are these, that firstly, a leader has to shine the torch forward. You know, he or she has to, whether they like it or not, be able to very clearly articulate what is the path that we're on. Secondly, once having done that, has to have an exceptional relationship with the people that they're inherently reliant on to actually make it happen. You know, we don't talk enough, in fact, about the two, you know, the, the second and third layers of management in yeah. companies because they do it all. That's they right. do it all. The CEO nowadays doesn't have time to do a whole lot other than, firstly, to project the vision. Secondly, to be the coach, you know, to get the very, very best out of the 20 or 30 people that they can have deep relationships with. I think beyond that, it's very, very hard. And, um, and then they have to, to, you know, create that right relationship with the board that hopefully is comprised right. Now, that's only three things. And you would say, my gosh, you've left so much out. And I have. But I've done that intentionally because if you don't have those three things working well, then I think you start with an enormous, um, an enormous handicap. Okay. Let's change tact for a second using your language. CSIRO. Yeah. Big role for you. Oh, it was an enormous role. But um, well, what, did you say, what did you set out to achieve? Well, well, firstly, let me just say it came from nowhere. Uh, interestingly, <laughs> CSIRO was one of the really important parties in that yachting quest that I talked about. But that had been 20 years before that. They helped us, in fact, be one of the first um, uh, users of carbon fibre here in, in the country. And uh, we got this huge shipment of carbon fibre from Europe, from a sponsor, but they didn't give us any of the resin or any of the layup techniques. And we crawled to CSIRO, we didn't have any money, and said, would you like it if uh, you could uh, help us, you know, make this work? <laughs> and what I didn't know at the time, what none of us knew, was that at that point in time, they'd been approached by the aviation industry. Oh, this right. is a long time ago, back in the 80s, early yeah. 80s. And uh, CSIRO could not get, even CSIRO couldn't get this particular high modulus carbon fibre. And we had, seemed like a container load full of it, you know, that came free from our, our major sponsor. Anyway, CSIRO said to our amazement, oh, we'll be very happy to help you develop this. All we want is some of your material. We had more than we needed, so we were happy to hand it across. But, you know, all I'm saying is it's it's a story from a long time ago, but it was my first um, – and, look, I, I wasn't leading the technology side of our syndicate at all. That was that that guy, Lindsay. But, um, but I saw through my own eyes what can happen 
when there's a great collaboration with Australia's preeminent scientific organisation. And, of course, after that, I just kept my eye on it. My eyes had been opened and I was very interested in all that CSIRO did. And so, you know, when I was approached in 2010, literally out of the blue, and I still today really don't know why, why they approached me, but probably what they didn't know is that as a non-scientist, I'd had this fascination with CSIRO for for twenty years. Then, as a result of what they'd done in our, um, in our in our carbon fiber development program, and and for me, it was just one of those, you know, yet again, Greg, another lucky moment. CSIRO, I knew before they approached me, was an extraordinary organisation with a very very broad bandwidth of of focus, much broader than most scientific research organisations. Five thousand fabulous people. And even then, it was well known for having, you know, invented all manner of things from, from Wi-Fi. A lot of people onwards. don't even know that. No, they don't. No. And, um, you know, look, I'm not sure that I did much there. I did my five years and I, you know, frankly, probably the <laughs> major thing I recall was just a, a somewhat difficult political environment. Had a few interesting um, conversations with relevant ministers, you know, imploring for more resources and and you know, it was in the early days of the sensitivity about climate change, and and the Middle government did not want to hear about yeah. what seemed to be inevitable, etc. But look, I'm I'm absolutely not going to overstate what I did at Syro because <laughs> there's nothing to say. Um, at the end of the day, I just literally tried to do my best. And it, well, I guess if there was anything that did emerge at the time, it was the importance of Syro connecting more and more with the corporate community. And, uh, you know, that had happened significantly under Megan Clark, and she was my CEO for most of the time I was there. And then we appointed the current incumbent, Larry Marshall, who's continued on that um, progress. Now, I'm absolutely underselling all of the amazing things that CSIRO has done. But um, in, in many respects, what I remember is actually a period where there was actually a bunch of government people who who wanted to contain it, who wanted to, frankly, constrain it. And, uh, you know, behind the scenes, that's the, the thing I remember most. Okay, so that's a really important part, so I'm sure we're going to come to it a bit later. Are we missing a trick here as a nation in the sense of, oh, you know, yeah. this whole yeah. opportunity with regards to technology, yep. innovation, thought-provoking ideas, and then we've yep. got the bureaucrats or the police saying, well, not on my watch, I've got eight months before the next election. Yeah. How, are we, how are we going to change this, Simon? Well, let me just say I'm part of the problem because <laughs> how on earth did a 15-year-old who really deep down, I even knew then that I was interested in in change for good, improvement, and that and then we didn't have keyboards or computer screens then, but, but you know, whatever it was, it was going to require a, a good understanding of physics and chem and what have you. But how did I so easily just make the choice to having known all of that to turn my back on it? And and you can see why I've played a constant game of catch up ever since I became an adult to try and have at least a modicum of of involvement in it. But I think in many respects, you know, that's our starting point. We do not actually have as a nation the culture that that some other nations have. I mean I've been privileged to to lead one of these you know, delegations to Israel, the yeah. Australia-Israel Chamber of Commerce. They do an extraordinary job just in terms of keeping the two countries connected because we do share some similarities. We're both you know, not 
massive, massively populated, et cetera, et cetera. But the Israelis have a culture we don't have. We have pockets of it. And, of course, we're as good as anyone, if not the best in the world, in certain technological areas. But we have to be honest with ourselves. Overall, we do not have, even with um, you know, former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull trying to push it hard, mm. I, I think he actually realised that it was not a message that the whole country found easy to receive. It was a, a message that was often received with, oh, I'm a bit worried this is going to affect my you know, my, my security, my future change. And, and I guess, you know, my simple starting point is that we need to be better at educating, and it starts with our young people, of the not only the importance but the inevitability of change. It's, it's actually got to be a core subject. How do we as, you know, we're the most intelligent species on the planet by a country mile. Yes. And we're clearly going to evolve quickly, if I can put it that way. You know, we're, if there's something good around, we're going to do it. And honestly, for a national culture, we do not have that immersed enough in our psyche. It's that simple. Well, I just read it this week. I read something over the last two weeks about you leading the charge again. Maybe you can talk it through. What is the Australian Industry Energy Transition Initiative that you've uh, put your hand up? Yeah. Um, Look, look, uh, Greg, it's simply this, that um, it's actually been organised by a a group out of Monash University, Climate Works. Yep. Wonderful, you know, group of people who are focused on on the inevitable need for industry to transition, or in fact, the whole of the community to transition away from consuming and uh, and, and sourcing the power that we do today. Now, this mouthful, <laughs> the uh, the initiative, I'll just call it, um, is very focused on bringing the big emitters together. So we have a a bunch of industrial processes, whether it's um, steel or aluminium and chemicals production and what have you. And uh, Climate Works, along with some others, and CSIRO is in there again as okay. well, okay. have um, brought together Australia's largest emitters and said, look, um, we know that you are all trying to transition to a, a much less carbon-intensive future, but you know what? It's hard. It's hard here in Australia because whilst we do have the CSIRO and all sorts of universities that produce extraordinary research, let's be serious. We are not the centre of the universe for so much that's required. So simplistically, what this group does is says, look, it's important, firstly, to collaborate and to share ideas because an individual company trying to do it by itself, especially based here in Perth or Sydney or Melbourne, it's very, very hard. And secondly, to create this group of companies and connect it very closely to some of the most impressive research organisations in the world, starting with CSIRO and then we have this Rocky Mountain Institute out of North America, which is a specialist research hub in relation to energy transition. And uh, all I can say is that, you know, there's absolutely no reluctance at all. I mean, this is not being done for window dressing purposes. These corporates know that whether it's, um, every one of us knows because it's so loud, the crescendo of, of opinion from the largest shareholders in the world now saying, you know, clean up your act. We are looking very carefully what you do. What we often don't see, though, as a community is an equally loud voice coming from customer groups. And they're saying very directly behind the scenes to all of our biggest corporates, indeed all around the world, we will have no choice in the years to come but to buy product 
which we will then use for whatever purpose, but to buy product which um, has been put together with low carbon intensity. And if you can't offer us that, it doesn't matter how cheap your product is, we will have no choice but to say, sorry, you're no longer relevant. It's like, you know, Cadbury with its chocolate. It had to clean up its act in relation to, um, you know, ensuring that little kids didn't spend their lives picking cocoa beans. And and it's very real and intentional. It's just a, uh, it's not something that that we hear much throughout the broader community. The voice is very loud inside the industrial uh, industrial sector. Can I take you back to two thousand and eleven? Yeah, you were named Australian of the Year. Simple question: Why did you get that? Um, it's been a bit of a theme this morning. Um, just luck, because come on, uh, honestly, no, no, no. I'm <laughs> very serious. There's a in fact, I, I once I was embarrassed. Gosh, you know, I do have an ego like everybody else. <laughs> but um, but you know, when you allow yourself to to get outside of the corporate world and to to spend you know some serious amount of time in in other places, you suddenly realise. And I'm not saying there aren't good people in corporates. Of course, there are. There are wonderful people in corporate, <laughs> but there are a lot of very wonderful people in the non-for-profit sector as well. And this next point is really important because, you know, I know we often in the corporate world look down on non-for-profits. You know, they've got a lesser standard of this. Or, well, let me just tell you, that's wrong. Okay. I know more talented people, more skilled people, more capable people in the non-for-profit sector than I do in the corporate sector. People that have actually made decisions often early in life saying, I could do all sorts of things. I've got the same sort of degree as Simon has. Yeah. But they made a decision to go and help others. It was that simple. That was their career. And and that's why I say, you know, just as a matter of fact, that there's quite a lot of embarrassment internally for me being Australian of the Year because I know, you know, there are 100,000 people that are more worthy of that honour than, than me. But because of luck and what have you, I was chosen. Perhaps I've had more titular positions up the top of organizations and others, which is, you know, really important not to take too seriously because you're always reliant on all the hard work of others to actually be in that position. But anyway, long-winded way of, of, of ending up saying it came as a surprise, obviously. It came from nowhere. Here I am suddenly Australian of the Year. What am I going to say? And I tried to take every opportunity to just say what I've just said to you, okay. namely, look at this extraordinary world. Don't look down on the non-for-profit sector. It's actually got extraordinary people through it who have made big sacrifices in relation to what they might have done materially. Look, it's not a perfect world. There are failures everywhere, obviously, but I'm focused on the champions in that industry. And they have an enormously big job to do, which only gets bigger as every year goes by, and they need help. They need support. And, and it's not just a matter of writing out a cheque to make yourself feel good on the 30th of June, but get a bit involved. Let yourself, you know, sacrifice yourself a little bit. Hurt yourself a little bit to share their load. And by that, I really mean just spend some time. And then the final bit was, and isn't it interesting, that provided you choose the right cause that, you know, works for you and and the team thing is right, it's, as we've dealt upon. Isn't it interesting? You'll end up and you won't even notice it, but you get so much more than you put into it. 
your eyes are opened. And uh, that's basically all I said for a year. So, Red Simon, you're across the big issue. You've played a key role yep. in the big issue in Melbourne. Summer housing, into science, red dust role models. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you want to give us a bit of a flavour of those and some of the experiences you've had out of that? Because I'm not aware of them personally. Well, firstly, yeah, look, I, I've been driven by people. In my case, I've been driven by people, not causes. I've allowed myself to be, um, and this is a real privilege, to be exposed to a very wide range of philanthropic endeavours. And the only area that I've typically said no to is actually the arts. Not that I don't like the arts. I love the arts. I, my wife is is an arts junkie. Um, I encourage everyone else to go and do the art stuff because my preference is always, well, it starts with poverty, to be blunt. Yeah, you know, so yeah. We're, we're, yep. And I think about it, there's a lot of poverty in the arts at the moment. But, you know, what I am saying is whether it's downright material poverty, disability, homelessness, our Indigenous challenge, whatever, you know, that's the thing. They're the things that really tug at me. And as I said, I've, I've not so much been driven by particular causes. You know, I've got to get involved in this. I've actually just allowed myself to form friendships with all sorts of extraordinarily inspirational people throughout the sector. And then every now and then, it's just right for me to in a more formal way, join their cause by, you know, being on the board or whatever it is. That's my simple strategy. It's not even a strategy when you think about it, but that's worked for me. I've often been asked by some people, particularly those that have so-called made it and have had a little look at my life and said, you know, have you got any advice for me? And I will say to them very consistently, well, look, you know yourself best. You know what's going to work for you. What's worked for me probably won't work for you. Yeah, fair point. You know, for me, it's very much the people thing. Someone gets in my ear and says, could you help me on this? You know, would you be my chair or da 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 And I say, yes, I will. And it's very, very much focused on assisting an individual as well as then the cause which flows from that. For others, and in fact, I think I'm going to be a bit unusual in that respect because most people will just be passionate about, say, the plight of the Indigenous. Yep. And then it's a matter of saying, well, that's fine, but there's a whole array of possibilities that one can, you know, be involved just focusing on Indigenous issues. And I just, you know, typically talk to people and say, look, just work it out, do a bit of research, test yourself, push yourself a little bit. And all I can say is that I've rarely heard of anyone who, after having done the work, really worked out what works for them. And then they've made the decision to join something that it hasn't ended up being the most extraordinary, satisfactory, uh, satisfying rather, experience for them. Simon, when you look back now, when you're in 2011, you awarded the great honour of Australian of the Year. Have you used it to the best of your ability? Oh, probably not. I haven't done ever anything to the best of my ability. But I think I can honestly say I tried. Look, the good news, the good news for me, was that, you know, I'm, I'm no celebrity or, or um, yeah, let's face it, you know, a number of Australians of the year over the years have been incredibly well-known, yeah. you know, celebrity types. Correct. And, uh, and I'm just really glad I've never been close to being one because for me it was such a humbling experience that, that I just knew deep down I had to take every opportunity to, to just, in my own words, try and get out that message that, if we're fortunate enough to have enough food on the table, to have shelter that we live in, to, to have a regular family, um, 
you, you know, life is kind of okay. We all have our issues, but overall, life is okay. And my most important point was you will get so much more if you take a bit of a chance at this point and go beyond just writing out the check and really immerse yourself in a cause. Start owning it. Start being responsible for navigating its way forward so that it has more impact. But only do it after you've done the hard work of working out what really does work for you. And and I love, Greg, I love using the word selfish. Okay. I do it because, you know, it wakes people up sometimes. I mean, sometimes you're talking about this stuff and people fall asleep. I understand all that. <laughs> but I've had to think of a few things that actually wake people up. And I say, be selfish, be kind to yourself. And that has actually, I think, worked once or twice. You know, when people say, oh, this guy's just talking about doing good and, you know, I haven't got time. I, I do enough. I do enough. And I say, look, if you actually just push yourself, you know, be that athlete. Go past the point of pain and then all of a sudden there's a gold medal or there's something that, you know, only by pushing yourself actually came. And in the case of giving yourself to the community, it's those, uh, I I mean, I've got a long list of things and they're not just because I was a so-called good person, but to be in some little out-of-the-way village and they honestly have no idea, these people, how the big world works they are literally coping from day to day if the crop fails they do it hard and they might just know the village across the next mountain range a bit you know i'm this is a world that i know is decreasing all the time but there's there's still bits of it around and there's certainly real poverty around and when someone just gives you a hug as you could once upon a time do pre-covid and they don't really know who they're hugging or whatever, but they know why they're hugging that person. They're saying, you are part of an organisation that has given us enormous hope, which, say, my parents never had or whatever. You have actually come into this place. You've given us education. Our homes aren't falling down. We know how to grow good crops nowadays. You've given us the means to bypass the horrible middleman that took all the profit out of our crop, like a whole lot of things. And when someone who you don't know, through an interpreter, just gives you a hug and they've got tears in their eyes and you end up getting tears in your eyes very quickly too. But you know what they're saying. And and, and honestly, it's quite, you've got to be really careful because I haven't really done anything except being on a visit, you know, organised by some group. I haven't actually done the, the real, you know, the hard work of whoever the the leader in this particular organisation has been on the ground doing all the work, etc. But all I know is that those touching experiences, and they can happen anywhere. Visiting our prison system, yeah. you, you know, there's there are lonely people everywhere. Indeed, there's more lonely people in the Western world or the developed world than in the in the undeveloped world. And just saying, can I find an hour or two to go to a place that I've always been told is horrible, but I can do some good there. And the selfish bit, I just don't hesitate to emphasise because you get something you do not get anywhere else. You certainly don't get it in corporate life. Does that bring that form of happiness that you you talked about earlier? Okay. Yeah, look, I did a commerce course and and I understand why we're so focused on, um, you know, economic measures, GDP and what have you. They're they're really easy to measure. (laughs) They really are. 
pop a whole lot of data. Yeah, the old, the old, and the old basket of goods, and off we go. Yeah. But I think, um, you know, I hope the next generation, because, you know, we haven't taken enough interest in it, but I hope the next generation of Australians really do take, um, and happiness mightn't even be the right word, but whatever it is, it's it's something very different from just measuring our material well-being. And, you know, the Canadians, the New Zealanders, there's a number of countries, the Scandinavians, they take this stuff really seriously mm-hmm. and have very good, um, very well-developed measures of of happiness. And all I would say as an old person to the next generation is take happiness seriously, take well-being seriously. You know, I think we've honestly done to death the material stuff. We know it backwards. We're an incredible species at measuring every aspect of material well-being. So, you know, we can tick that box and I think move on to a much better understanding of what we need to do both individually and as a community to to get the happiness up. And um, uh, yeah, perhaps we've just got to get a better word because it does sound a bit soft. But the important bit of it, though, is that, you know, isn't it interesting? There is no direct correlation between material wealth and happiness. Subject to one thing, we've got to have food on our table. We've, you know, got to feel secure in where we live and that sort of thing. Great to have a job. But beyond that, whether we like it or not, the the holiday house, the second car, the mega yacht, sorry, they, they, there's no direct correlation with happiness. It's actually something else. And too many of us don't realize that until too late in life. How's my happiness going to be if I'm a young, young person, Simon, and I'm going to Monash University? And I'm going to come out next year. I'm a bit worried about where the world's at. Yep. Well, it's nice to hear your version of happiness, but it looks like it's going to be a bit tough for me. What's the university landscape and what are you guys thinking about? But Greg, let me just say, that's why I think happiness is so important because whilst we have uh, you know, Treasurer Josh and, and a whole lot of people working hard on the economic response, if that's all we do, it's not enough. I mean, now is a time. Well, in fact, one of the good things I think that's come out of um, this this last era is that I think we are better at asking how are you going. Yeah, true. I agree with that. How are you, how are you navigating this? You know, I wouldn't wish this era on anyone, obviously, but there are some good things that have come out of it. And I think taking an extra bit of time to be interested in someone's well-being is one of those those things. But look, to answer your question, yeah, this is. These one-in-a-lifetime, one-in-a-century events, well, we've had probably three or four big things in the last century. And let's face it, since the Second World War, lots of stuff to worry about, but nothing on a scale like this. So, you know, there we go, 75 years of um, you know, that whole baby boomer generation having come through, and particularly here in Australia, 30 years without a recession. Wow, bang. And then all of a sudden, we're deeply immersed in this. And it's bigger than any one of us. Um, how bad do I you see that, it, Simon? Yeah. How bad? Sorry, is, how, how bad is it? Do you think? It's a really, really broad question for for the whole world. It's terrible, and we're not talking too much at the moment about the undeveloped world. It has been set back a long way, and when you think about the really positive news that's just coming out in in recent weeks about vaccine yes. discovery and yep. possible development. I mean, that is, and that's absolutely supporting stock markets all around the world. 18 months ahead, we can see a big light at the end of the tunnel. Couldn't say that two months ago. No. It's, it's really exciting. But what I often think about is, 
it's going to be a long way before the, you know, the bottom 50 poorest nations of the world really participate in that. And so that wedge or that gap between the rich and the poor is only going to widen further, I think, as a result of COVID. So it depends how you ask your question. Um, I think there's an enormous amount of doom and gloom for that part of the global population, which is traditionally, you know, missed out on everything and it's going to miss out now on on any resumption of growth that comes out courtesy of a vaccine. But but let's look at Australia. Actually, interestingly, I see again a real possibility of a widening of the gap between not so much the haves and the have-nots, but those that have opportunities and those that don't. But I think, you know, it goes back, I think, to what I said earlier, and namely that as far as our young people are concerned, we do need an education system that that whatever it takes does make more of our young people more resilient to change. What I really see with this pandemic and coming out of it is a fast forwarding of change that would have occurred anyway. So, you know, again, one of the good things that's coming out of it is the young people have won in relation to their desire for what they see as the workplace. So management's going to have to be better in the future at managing remotely. I reckon 10 years has just been contracted into one by virtue of of what's occurring now. So some of this is positive. There's no doubt about that. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, we're going to see so much uh, lessening of opportunity for people as well. And certain jobs that once existed will not exist in the future, clearly. And again, it's all been speeded up. It's been speeded up out of the necessity of responding to this pandemic. Where does that leave us? Um, It's almost too big for me to summarise or describe. But as individuals, uh, you know, whether we're 25 or 65, for me it's very important to, to continue to be surrounded by, you know, a good cohort of friends, family, people that really do support you because there will be more uncertainty in the world. Some people will feel very comfortable because, you know, they're ahead of that wave of change and they'll materially and in their own positions probably succeed. Many others will feel much more left behind than ever before. But what happens if you know, Josh Frydenberg or the PM or someone gave you a call and said, look, you're Chancellor of Monash, uh, your um, business model will undoubtedly change. International students yep. may not come flooding yep. in back anymore. So from the Chancellor's, wearing your Chancellor's hat, where is your thinking at the moment? And is it, the university going to have the same capability as they did before in sense of revenue streams? And what's the impact again on that, Simon, on um, uh, investment in going forward in, in, in what yes. you guys have been focused on for such a long period of time? If my thesis is right, well, not my thesis, but um, uh, if the thesis is right that the vaccine discovery and development process is looking very positive at this point. Okay, and that okay. Later next year, later yep. next year, it will be available to many. I know that's a long time off and it'll be available to some much sooner than that. But all I'm saying then is that um, from a university perspective, for example, we'll probably have seen, you know, two or three lost years. But I then see, I then see, subject to just one thing, um, a resumption of where we were today. Now, that might be seen as an optimistic outlook, but the reason for my optimism is simply this, that, you know, again, countries like Australia and New Zealand are the big winners out of COVID. I shouldn't say that. But 
but it's true. Because we, we've managed we, it so well? We've managed it so well. We've got quite a sophisticated healthcare system. We're, we're an island and we are the envy still of so many in the world, particularly in Asia. And with a world-class university system, the demand that um, it's experienced over the last decade or so, I think, will continue. Now, the big subject too, of course, is the emergence of you know China yeah. as a super economic power. Absolutely. I mean, that continues, no secret about that. But I think what the whole world is now realizing is that it has a voice as well. It has a voice and it's not going to hesitate to say what it thinks, which from time to time won't agree with our thinking and won't agree with the thinking of other countries that we've typically felt comfortable aligning ourselves with. So it's you know going to be pretty frosty at times. You do think we're going to get back in a couple of years' time if your theory comes, comes through? Oh, look, it's totally dependent on the, um, the success of the vaccine. But, but what I am saying is for the reasons I, I yeah. said before, yeah. namely, you know, just these inherent qualities that we have, we'll be in more demand. Look, I'll, I'll just tell you anecdotally that, that Monash, of course, has people on the ground in China. And, you know, increasingly there's a, a cohort of upper middle class that have, uh, you know, materially all they need. And they, can, and they have choices. And they can choose how much time do they spend in Australia, how much time do they spend in Beijing or wherever they're and, you know, anecdotally, some of them have said before this COVID thing came, we'd been sort of thinking about spending more time, you know, the house that we have in North Baldwin here in Melbourne, you know, spending more time there. And we're now not going to hesitate. That is what we're going to do. We want to shift more of our focus to Australia. So, again, we're the lucky country in one sense in that we're seen as so damn attractive that, um you know, people from other parts of the world will simply want to live here. Okay. You're also a director of a bank, yep. NAB. Yeah. Uh, gone through yep. a fair, fair amount of change of late, chief yep. exec, chairman as well, and some interesting, you know, thoughts put out there about re-education. Where do you see the banking sector at the moment? Are you comfortable with the way they've, they've addressed COVID and supported the nation? And, and, and how do you see it rolling out in the next 12 months? Yeah, look, actually, at a high level, I think um, – certainly through the eyes of, of NAB, but no doubt others, you know, the banking, uh, well, the four big banks, the banking system, has responded very well mm. to COVID. Obviously, the big issue is the the handling, the managing of, of borrowers who are doing it tough. And there's been some fairly direct messaging come from APRA, as well as the Federal Treasurer, as to how to, you know, be part of the movement to get us through this COVID era. But, you know, there'll be some, some challenges there, I'm sure. But, but I think the bigger issue, obviously, for, for the banking sector is simply that, you know, it was found wanting, um, particularly at the, at the Royal Commission. Yeah. You felt you that was fairly deserved, did you, Simon? Oh, yeah. Well, well, clearly no one's going to argue against those findings. I mean, it's interesting. Um, you know, at the end of the day, we do have to remind ourselves that it's it's a royal commission. It's not actually a legal process. And there'll be many in the banking sector, I presume, who argue that, you know, it was a bit unfair and the process and all that stuff. But, you know, get over it. This is the experience of every royal commission. And, and by get over it, I mean, say, look, take the recommendation seriously. But this next point is my most important point, namely, don't be suffocated. 
you know, we, we can turn any big organization into something that is simply 100% focused on risk and it paralyzes itself. Yeah. Yep. Now, I don't think anyone is asking a bank to be like that. Um, there are more businesses to be grown. There are more people who want to own their home next year. There's, you know, banks have to remain effective, good stewards of all the depositors' money that have been given to them and make good loans on the other side. And whilst they've been, you know, bashed around the heads by the findings of the Royal Commission and all sorts of other criticisms, um, you know, we all simply have to say we need to improve and that improvement process is obviously well underway. But most importantly, not to feel suffocated by the fact that it's too big a job. You know, these banks are very large organisations, very complex. It will remain important for management to get that balance right between risk and growth. You talked about at the beginning of the, the podcast, your early days, starting out of the <laughs> young company, which became probably the most successful investment bank we have in this country, Macquarie Bank, which was built on taking on the challenges, being nimble, making yeah. decisions fast, cutting mm. through. Now we've got, you're in one of the four pillar banks. Big difference there, Simon. So what's the yep. greatest fear in maybe the four pillar banks out there at the moment? Is there going to be others which are going to completely take them on and disrupt them too fast and catch well, them off their guard? The, yeah, we're certainly in an era of the neobank, yeah. where small and nimble, and, and, and now I'm talking about banks rather than investment banks, but you know, those in the business of attracting deposit funds and then lending them at a margin to those who need those and using at their disposal technologies that have been previously not available. Well, it's pretty damn obvious that each of the big banks has to take technology really seriously. I would argue even more seriously yeah. than a neobank because at the same time, it's got to run and indeed convert its traditional banking operation into a more effective and efficient system as well. And against this backdrop that we just discussed before about you know not having got a great scorecard out of the court of public opinion over the last 10 years. So yep. you know I'm trying to paint a picture that the leadership of each of our big banks has a huge job to do. But another part of me is going to finish it up by saying, but what an important job because very easy to be critical of the big banks, but Australia without the four big banks at the moment would be unrecognisable. Yeah, agree. And each and every one of us probably, well, most of us anyway, has a need, a relationship with a four big bank. And actually, for as much as we criticise them, I think deep down many of us know we need them to continue. We need them to improve. We have an expectation that they will remain financially strong. That's been the, the big scorecard, of course, you know, since the sometimes 20 or 30 years ago when they weren't so strong, you know, they lead the world in that sense now. And we just need all of our banks as well, including the one I'm involved with, to lift its game in relation to community expectations about behaviour as well. And all I'm saying is that's a huge job right. for everyone who works in a bank, especially management, job that has to be done. Couple of last questions for you. You mentioned the court of public opinion. Yep. You're on another board. Rio Tinto is getting a bit of press coverage. What do we take from you today with what they're thinking about? Lessons learned, examination of deals going in different parts of the world, et cetera. It's a lot of lot of press yep. coverage. And I guess the obvious question, why did you take the role? Yeah. 
Well, firstly, let's be very clear. I can't speak on behalf of Rio Tinto. I'm a a mere non-executive director. So easier for me to say, speak on behalf of the industry or just as an ordinary individual. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, you know, as a former lawyer, isn't it interesting? The court of public opinion for me today is 10 times more important than any legal issue that one of the companies I'm involved in is caught up in. It is about the court of public opinion. That social license to operate is incredibly important. And it is so much bigger, Greg, than just putting a glossy annual report out every year, trying to think of things that, you know, you can say you're good about. I mean, it's 365 days a year when you do something as a corporate to upset a member or a group of, you know, in the community, you know that that you're going to pay for it. Mm. And so you should. The world of social uh, media, right? And exactly. And and the medium through which or the media through which people can vent their spleen nowadays is, is essentially unrestricted. And I say that's a good thing. You know, look. But is that causing indeed, is that causing sometimes to take the soft option? Yes, that's right. And and that's where I was going to, to lead because, you know, there are many in corporate life who say, oh, you know, they've only got these advocates who are criticizing, they've only got half the story or if they've got the full story, they're only sharing publicly. The yeah. half, there is another side to the story. Yeah. And then they'll convince themselves and we can't really tell it because of this and that. But my job nowadays often as a, as a director is to say, well, you know, it's your choice as to whether you want to roll up your sleeves and be a manager, let alone a CEO in a large corporate like this. And you're right, I've made an, an active decision yep. to be part of a big bank and to be part of a large mining group with my eyes wide open, not only knowing, um, and some people will probably throw rotten tomatoes at me at this point, <laughs> but not only knowing the good things yep. that they do. Yep. Every slab of steel that's ultimately produced can be put to excellent use. Every good loan can be put to good use. But also uh, to emphasise that this court of public opinion requires all of us to produce that service or that good in a way that's entirely satisfactory, whether it's from a um, an environment perspective, just from a good behaviour perspective, you know, whatever. And any manager who's not up to balancing that complicated set of competing interests you just don't want them. It goes back to the point we discussed a long time ago about team. I, I always start with not so much the skill base of an individual, even though that's incredibly important, but just their ability as a person to be part of a team, to take up the challenge, to push themselves very, very, very hard to do what has to be done. Because what I know is in this present era, it's really hard for management to balance all those competing interests, including, of course, Finally, the shareholders' interest, who want their pound of flesh as well. But a good manager has to say very clearly to shareholders, you are not going to get your material return unless you allow us to do all the right things that the community is expecting us to do. And that will cost money. But in the longer term, you as shareholders will be better off. Look, as a stakeholder in this country and as a voter in this country, as a taxpayer in this country, are you happy with the way that the governments are managing COVID and the difference between the premiers and yeah, federal government? Uh, big, big question. I know. question. <laughs> but, you know, I'm going to give you a simple answer and say yes. You know, I've never had the guts to go into politics. 
Um, I, I have been asked a bit <laughs> from from all sides, actually, um, but I haven't had the guts, and and it is a matter of guts. I'm someone around a dinner. Well, we don't have too many dinner parties anymore, but. Um, you know, I, I'm often the last person to criticise a politician because they do a job I cannot do. And I only say all of that, Greg, to actually express my admiration for politics right at the moment. In fact, I really hope, firstly, like everybody else, that this pandemic finishes. But I also really hope that some of the things that I see in politics at the moment, it's not universal, obviously, but there has been outwardly more cooperation. There has been a better connection between the states and the feds. Okay. Um, and, and the clarity, if you like, of focus in relation to dealing with this pandemic has actually been a good thing. You know, we're not being distracted. So are we going for suppression or eradication, Simon? What, what, which way do you think we're going? Oh, no, well, we're certainly not going for eradication. I think every politician is trying to make that point very clear. Yeah, well, I just think sometimes the premiers seem to be a bit confused on it. Um, Maybe a bit harsh. Yeah, well, look, they, they might have been um, thinking about it. Well, you know, they, they might have been interested in it several weeks ago, but I think the data today is, one, not surprising, unfortunately. And, you know, we obviously have a gigantic problem here in Victoria, but it's not just a Victorian problem, as you can see. So, look, and, but, but in any event, I'm no expert in relation to eradication versus suppression. But but what I would strongly, strongly be supportive of is that as a nation, we have to absolutely play this long game of, of not saying it's too hard, just let's relax. Let's, um, you know, I've done enough reading, I guess, for myself to say that, you know, the, the Swedish model, if I can put it that yeah, way, yeah. or the US yep. model is not the way I want to go. We don't have to. And, and I'm just crossing my fingers, because it is a cross-the-fingers job, hoping that we as a whole community can do what is right and manage our way through hopefully what is only a 12 to 18-month period until a vaccine is available. All I'm saying is that if we can do that, if we can do that, we emerge out the other side as an even stronger nation again. Um, no one wanted this pandemic, but one of the byproducts is that I see in Australia, which is an even luckier country in a couple of years' time and looking forward, that it's been historically. Now, you may not be a politician. You've knocked it back a couple of times. But I, am I going to come and have a chat with you one afternoon and say, look, I'm, I'm keen to push for the republic? <laughs> Trying to ask yeah. you about that. Good. Well, look, there are a, a lot more you know, louder celebrity people who advocate for that than me. But no, yeah. deep down, yeah, look, I, I don't know why I've just always been a Republican. You know, I just don't. But I guess my point, my strong point, Greg, and I, well, up until COVID, you know, I have had to go to London several times a year because of the, the real appointment. I am a, a very, very strong supporter of us maintaining our role in the Commonwealth of Nations. And I also say, for a number of reasons, that I don't want our relationship with the UK in particular yeah. to deteriorate. In fact, I want it to be stronger. The UK has still an awful lot to tell us. Why, for example, do they spend per capita three times as much as we do on overseas aid? You know, they haven't had the economic experience that we've had over the last 30 years. We're way ahead of them. And yet, we're positively stingy compared to the UK. And there's a number of other things that intrigue me as well. So, 
as an ardent Republican, I'm not someone who says we're the answer to all the world's problems and, and, and you know, let's just be truly great and inward looking. No. I'm someone who says I want a deeper relationship with the traditional old mother country, as someone calls it. I want an excellent relationship with the Commonwealth of Nations, which, of course, in terms of number, has a very large number of developing nations. It's a very good club to be involved in and it's something where Australia can box way above its weight. You know, it has much more impact than, say, the United Nations, which is, uh, you know, three or four times as big. Yeah. And um, uh, and so that's where I stand on the Republic. But I just don't think we need to worry the royal family anymore about uh, our internal political matters. Do you, do you actually see us getting there, Simon? Yeah, I do. Oh, I do, I do, I do. Obviously not today. We've got a, a pandemic to think about. But there was this rare period, um, when did we stumble into it? Two or three years ago, someone just said to me, guess what? We've now got every premier in the country who's a, a strong Republican. It might have just been towards the end of the, the Abbott era. And, um, and I think ScoMo's probably had a bit too much on his plate in, in recent times to be concerned about it. But, you know, that was the very first time that every state, you know, every state premier was not not just kind of neutral, but said, I think reasonably strongly, look, we ought to be a republic. So it's taking a long time, but uh, but I think we'll get there. So I mean, last question for the day and the one we always ask, if you were to look back at that young lad growing up in Dandenong all these years later, and after all the awards and accolades you've rightly deserved and world records that you've broken, what advice would you give that young man? I know you wrote that question down. <laughs> I should have an answer for it. <laughs> and I did look at it and I thought about it. Um, I honestly don't have a very good answer. Well, we'll put it this way, Greg. My answer is this, that um, there are all sorts of little things that, that I, you know, regret. You know, made mis- I make mistakes every day of the week like everybody. But... The reason I struggle answering the question is that um, is that I'm overwhelmed by the good fortune that I've had. That's what I'm really saying. I mean, I've mentioned once or twice during this interview, I've had no strategy for my life. I literally wake up in the morning and think, what's there to do? And and I've been lucky enough, I think, to stumble on, and, and stumble is the right word, into, uh, I guess, seeing for myself, just as my parents experienced, you know, the good things that come from, you know, trying to at least reserve a bit of time to to think about others. But I think the scariest thing as I think about it is as if I was was to be that five-year-old again, doing it all again, because I just can't imagine I would have the luck that I've had a second time. You know, I know some people love to relive their lives, and if only I was young again. I actually don't think about that very much. I get scared because the number of good luck windows that have opened, such as that one when I responded to my, you know, having to come back to to, to look after my sister's situation. Yeah. I mean, that's not going to happen again. I mean, all I'm saying is that my life has been dominated by good fortune. That's all I can say. Well, Simon, thanks for joining us today. It's been a tremendous pleasure. Good stuff, Greg. Thank you. You've been listening to No Limitations. No Limitations.